Hello, you're listening to a Zen Studies Society podcast. To learn more about our community of Zen Buddhist practitioners, please visit zenstudies.org. Martin Luther King, Jr. Six Principles of Nonviolence. Principle one, nonviolence is a way of life for courageous people. It is active nonviolent resistance to evil. It is aggressive spirituality. It is mentally and emotionally aggressive. Principle two, nonviolence seeks to win friendship and understanding. The result of nonviolence is redemption and reconciliation. The purpose of nonviolence is the creation of the beloved community. Principle three nonviolence seeks to defeat injustice, not people. Nonviolence recognizes that evildoers are also victims and are not evil people. The nonviolent resistor seeks to defeat evil, not people. Principle four. Nonviolence holds that suffering can educate and transform. Nonviolence accepts suffering without retaliation. Unearned suffering is redemptive and has tremendous educational and transforming possibilities. Principle five. Nonviolence chooses love instead of hate. Nonviolence resists violence of the spirit as well as of the body. Nonviolent love is spontaneous, unmotivated, unselfish, unselfish, and creative. Principle six Nonviolence believes that the universe is on the side of justice. The nonviolent resistor has deep faith that justice will eventually win. Nonviolence believes that God is a God of justice. Good afternoon. Good afternoon. Today is the birthday of Martin Luther King. He was born in 1929, quite some time ago, in a different time, in different places than most of us. And there's very little that needs to be said about the impact of the arrival of this human being, not only on what's going on in the United States of America, but also in the world. Yesterday, I referred to Martin Luther King as a bodhisattva and pointed to the fact that bodhisattvas appear everywhere in all cultures at all times, in all different kinds of shapes and forms, skin tones, genders, and so on. And today, with his birthday, we look, let's look a little bit at what it is that Dr. King spoke about and how we can relate it to our practice here. You might think it's weird to read what I just read. The word God appears a lot of times and this is a Buddhist place, but you know, God is just another word where we have really no common agreement between even two people, what is meant, meant by any word. Words are agreements that are based on assumption. And already we are deep in the Diamond Sutra. 
in this case, we could say, God is not God. We just call it God. And that probably makes the most sense, even more than mountain is not mountain. We just call it mountain. So please keep that in mind. And when I attempt to relate this to our practice and the teachings of the historical Buddha and of all the following human beings who walked the path of the Buddha, it is not a comparison in any way. So please don't see it as, as that. And please don't see it as a judgment rendered either. Sometimes we fall into the trap to just see everything even self-centered from the point of view how others have failed in the past. We have to be very careful with that because, you know, we were not there. We are in a completely different situation. Each of us is in a unique set of conditions and circumstances that would you think that anyone else can figure out exactly why you do what you are doing at the moment? Probably not, because you might not know yourself. Now think of that of somebody who lived decades ago or even longer ago, who grew up under different circumstances and maybe acted out of whatever reasons they may, might have in ways that we nowadays, looking back, call unskilled. I'm not talking about Dr. King at all. But it's important that we look at history always from the point of view that we do not, we do not want to embellish it in a way that skews it in this or in that direction. And again, no judgment on what people used to do, what happened and so on. I'm thinking of one particular uh, individual here and, and maybe that is a topic that we should talk about at Shaka Soan, Soan Shaka session, for example. And all the history that we as the Zen school have with troublesome behavior during war times and nationalism and all of that. So that's a good introduction because it shows that nobody is immune to misstepping and always in the context of the time and the culture where people grew up. So Nonviolence. Nonviolence. Very, very important topic. Nonviolence because we want to understand and to begin with nonviolence, not in a dualistic sense. Yeah. Violence versus nonviolence exists in the two dimensional world. And in terms of political action, nonviolence is a real thing. It follows principles, it follows specific ways of resisting. In terms of practice, we have to examine what nonviolence means to us, to ourselves, to our own practice. And that we learn not to see it as the opposite of violence. The absence of violence is not nonviolence. And it is not peace either. Self and no self are another example of something that seems like a duality. And if we understand it as a duality, we are just still just a living on a two-dimensional place, in a two-dimensional field. And no self is prior to 
self and not self. Same with violence. So what is violence? Has anyone ever experienced violence? Oh yeah, many of us probably, and we are not aware. Some are not aware how impactful violence is. Violence can come in many different ways. Can be physical. It can be emotional. There can even be teachings of violence that are taught and adopted. And of course, there can also be verbal violence. So how do we practice and live according to this first principle? What Dr. King says here is nonviolence is a way of life for courageous people. That is definitely true also for this practice. This practice of not fighting and trying to achieve something, trying to beat ourselves down the path to awakening. <laughs> you know, the chances are pretty slim. That pathway that you beat yourself along, you know, it's circular. And as we go the pathway, we see, oh, others have gone this path. There's some blood here. Not realizing that it's our own trace that we are following. It needs courage. And it needs courage beyond reaction. You might have listened to Hokuto Osho's Teisho at some point about the paramecium mind. If you stick something into one of those single cell organisms, you know, they go like that. We are not different. There is a level of every existence that has led to this human kind of shape and form that reacts in that way. And that is something very natural. But reacting in that way, once we have consciousness, we can learn to not make it the default reaction to any kind of perceived assault that we have. And that actually is where the courage has to be. The courage not to choose what evolution has pre-programmed in us as an organism. Not fighting back instantaneously. Very good example is sitting here. And, you know, in the mindfulness tradition, you do body scans. Where you go through your whole body. When you do Zazen, you don't need to do that because your body will start telling you. <laughs> Hello. <laughs> Hello. Yes, this part of my body is most definitely here. Not only that, it tries to become the only part that is there. And this instant reaction to that is this spasmic kind of, you know, uh, you can feel it. It, it. it is an organic thing that we as organisms have. It, it hurts you. Have anyone ever felt like that? Yeah, it goes like that. And here comes the courage then to say, I shall not be overcome by this fear. By this fear, either to, our mind tries to run away 
that is one way, the flight instinct, or the other one would be, no, I have to fight this. That is violence. That is violence against what? Your knee? Are you going to declare war because it assaulted you? No. So there is this kind of instantaneous reaction. And that's where the courage comes in in this practice. In political and societal ways, it is a little different. So for Dr. King, it was the active nonviolent resistance to evil. A wonderful step forward, so much more wholesome than just going to war. I don't know how many of, I'm sure some of us here whose parents went to, through World War II. Uh, yeah. People were changed forever. My parents, both of them had to leave their homes. They had to leave them behind. Many things. And they didn't tell us much as children about the war because it is certainly not anything that you would like to impart on the next generation, the horrors you have gone through. And what we were taught as children basically is that in war, they are only losers. Nobody ever wins. It's not a way to resolve a conflict. Losers, no victors. And unfortunately, Society and language over the many, many hundreds of years that this society came through has a long-standing tradition of violence and war. Our language, our language is permeated by militaristic terms, phrases. And as I said before, with the Diamond Sutra, we just call it this or that. But it's also true that by calling it this or that, we create a reality of it. There is the relative reality and truth. And if we continue to speak in martial terms, we will reap martial action. So try to pay a little bit attention to even when you speak, when you come to, to use a term, first notice that you use a term. And it's everywhere. It's in business language. Yeah. What's your plan of attack? Huh? Can you say it in a different way? No prisoners will be taken. Well, you know what that indicates. Mm -hmm. Not really something you even want to use as a metaphor in speaking about anything. And there are so, so many, many words. I have a kind of advantage by the fact that English is not my first language. So examining it is, is a little different than having grown up in the language. So it even needs more courage to, to look at that from the point of view of a native speaker because one just uses those terms. Yeah. Nonviolence. An interesting statement from Dr. King here is it is aggressive, aggressive spiritually, mentally, and emotionally. So here we are already in, in the world of, I think, of this language. Aggressive. <clears throat> I would probably choose a different word. 
that comes from the six parameters of it's that virya, this determined application. It is energetic. It is full of resolve. It is not weak, but it doesn't have to be aggressive. It's pretty obvious if you come to different places where Zen happens and you see if people practice with resolve or aggressively. Huh? And it is actually when there are places that have kind of an aggressive practice, it attracts, guess what? Aggressive people. You hang around long enough in this practice, you will meet somebody who doesn't belong there because of their aggressions, who are steaming. The steam is coming out all the seams and they're ready to, ready to blow up because of that. Maybe for that, this kind of practice is not what we should recommend. So I would say nonviolence is resolute with resolve and dedication. Mentally, emotionally, and of course, spiritually. Now there's another word here is that, that was used. It appears the first time it comes over and over. The word evil. Evil. Here we have another duality. Good and evil. And that's in the two-dimensional word world. The only thing is, in the two-dimensional world, how many point, points of view are there? Well, at least two. Evil looks at the good and says, you're the evil one. Good looks at the evil and says, no, you are. This is the conundrum of duality. Here it comes, of course, out of the background of the teachings that Dr. King was following. But of course, what, it, what is meant is, is there such a thing as evil? What would the Diamond Sutra say? Evil is not evil. We just call it evil. Does that mean it's not destructive, hurtful, negative? Of course it is. But where do we see evil as human beings? Do you have any, any suggestions? Have you ever seen something that could be called evil? Oh, you're so lucky. The Holocaust. That was evil. But so did evil come in and do something? People. It was people. That's right. It was people. And so now, of course, our next step would be, oh yeah. These were, there's no evil, but the, these people were evil. No. No, no, no. Actually, one of the first things that my first Zen teacher, again, Roseo, taught us, it was one of his deepest first uh, revelations that he had. And that was to learn that there are no, no evil people. There are only evil actions. Now, please don't take that in a superficial way. There are no evil people. Inherently, nobody is evil. Inherently, nobody is good. But everybody carries in themselves the seeds of great atrocity, as well as the seeds of great benevolence.
Now you could say, well, Buddhism doesn't speak about good and evil. Is that so? <laughs> Chapter 9 of the Dhammapada <clears throat> is entitled Evil. Verse 116. Hasten to do good. Restrain your mind from evil. He who is slow in doing good, his mind delights in evil. 117. Should a person commit evil, let him do not do it again and again. Let him not find pleasure therein, for painful is the accumulation of evil. 118. Should a person do good, let her do it again and again. Let her find pleasure there, for blissful is the accumulation of good. 119. It may be well with the evildoer as long as the evil ripens not. But when it does ripen, then the evildoer sees the painful results of their evil deeds. 120. It may be ill with the doer of good as long as the good ripens not. But when it does ripen, then the doer of good sees the pleasant results of their good deeds. And so it goes on. So good and evil is a topic that is as old as humanity. And that is important to also understand it that way. These are wonderful things to tell people that used to hunt with spears and lived in caves we as society needed to evolve. And good and evil is a wonderful reward system to keep society somewhat at large. And then working, saying, encouraging that, which helps us become more benevolent and discouraging that that seems to be harmful to society. So there's nothing wrong with that, but. Now to take this as something in a fundamental way or, or a fundamentalist way, these are the words, is still not recognizing that these words are in the two dimensions of good and evil. In the Zen tradition, good and evil is completely different. Again, you might recall case 23 of the blue, uh, no, of the gateless gate, the Mumokan. The title is Think Neither Good Nor Evil. The sixth ancestor was pursued by the monk Myo. That was after he received the bowl and the robe from the fifth ancestor in secrecy because the other monks were jealous. And he set out at night to escape. But this monk, Myo, who used to be a general, is the military again, followed him as far as Taiyu Mountain. There he caught up. The ancestor, seeing your coming, laid the robe and the bowl on a rock and said, this robe represents the Dharma. It should not be fought over. If you want to take it away, take it now. We all stepped forward and tried to move it, pick it up but it was as heavy as a mountain and would not budge. Faltering and trembling, he cried out, I came for the Dharma, not for the robe. I beg you, please give me your instruction. The ancestor said, think neither good nor evil. At this very moment, 
what is the original self of the monk Mio? At these words, Mio was directly illuminated. Think neither good nor evil. Go to what is behind, what is the fundament, the fundamental element, the underlying nature of this human existence. Principle two speaks to that, to society, which I tried to introduce with these Dharmapada quotes. Society needs that at times. Not everybody has the luxury we have to take time to come and sit in a place like this. It's always astounding to come here in the middle of this bustling city and to find a place of stillness and of contemplation, of investigation and to find fellow practitioners who take time out of their lives to do this. Yet at the same time, we have to acknowledge that we have the ability to take that time. We're not foraging out in the streets in the garbage cans for food or try to find a box to cover ourselves at night. So we are incredibly fortunate. And then there are these rich teachings that have been imparted on humanity over the last almost two millennia. Very, very, very lucky are we. Principle two, nonviolence seeks to win friendship and understanding. The result of nonviolence is redemption and reconciliation. And the purpose of nonviolence is the creation of the beloved community. Sangha. Sangha. And Sangha is not just the people who show up and sit in the same room with us. Sangha is every person on this world. Sangha is even all sentient beings, all animals, all even insentient beings, all is sangha. That is the beloved community we speak about. Dr. King was looking at human community And the difficulties that we experience in society have maybe lessened, but by no means are we anywhere near a society that could be called a beloved community yet. However, if we win over those who oppose us, not by trying them, not trying to convince them that they are wrong, but by finding the points where we touch as human beings, where we have things in common. And of course we have much more in common and that we step back and back further from our individually different delusions. This is the real sad thing that most wars or conflict is based on two opposing delusions that in themselves both are deluded. The only real thing that comes out is violence and suffering. Principle three. Nonviolence seeks to defeat injustice, not people. That is this expression. It's not the person that, why would we go after another human being who themselves 
is in the cause of delusion that we just realized for ourselves how strong it can be. Is punishment what we want? Or how can we awaken ourselves with that resolve of nonviolence to help open somebody's heart rather than defeating or looking for gain. Now, of course, defeat again. What kind of a word is that? It's a word of violence. Sometimes there's a, some kind of a sports event on the TV and I watch it and maybe one of the teams is one of the local teams and try it out how quickly this might suck you into suddenly seeing the other team as not an opponent, but an enemy. One person on the other team does something that is perfectly wonderful. And you, ah, damn it. <laughs> This is the beginning of it, you know? This is the beginning. This is the beginning of all that clan, belonging to a clan and fighting. And sometimes, you know what? I have to turn it off. Not because I don't like the game, because I can't stand myself anymore. And I don't want to go there. Sometimes we have to remove ourselves from situations and conditions that we know are conducive to bring us into a pattern of just general human behavior that we have painfully learned over time is not helpful. But I like sports. <laughs> <laughs> you know who likes sports more than you? The advertisers. <laughs> so when we watch that, we are suckers in many different ways. But it's wonderful to see the achievement of human beings in terms of the athleticism and the things. But when it comes to beating each other up, there was this incident with the football player who had cardiac arrest on the field for maybe 24 hours, the whole thing stopped. Now he's back and it's going on. The same thing. Very little will change. What has to happen that we learn as human beings? So this is the nonviolent resistance seeks to defeat evil, not people. From the point of view of practice, defeating evil would mean defeating the idea of evil as a thing, of any of this, what societal ills are as something that is existing independently from the actions of human beings. I'll say it again in a different way. Very provocative. Provocatively, I could say, there is no racism, there is no misogyny. There are only people who act racist. There are only actions that are discriminating against them. That's a really, really important thing to see that it's on the individual level where these things are perpetrated. And when they're perpetrated, 
Of course, the effect comes into existence, but it does not exist independently from individual human beings. What that means for us, we have to really, really look at ourselves that we don't perpetrate any of these transgressions habitually without being aware of it. So the self-examination is really important. Now, some actually claim that Dr. King is in the continuation of the American Enlightenment thinkers, such as James Madison, Benjamin Franklin, Alexander Hamilton, John Adams, and also George Washington. And central to their thought was that reason was very important to them. And the power to which human beings understand the universe and how they improve their own condition as individuals, as well as, as society. And the goals they had often, they included this rational humanity that is based on knowledge, freedom, and happiness. And of course, from the Buddhist point of view, knowledge, it's not just the knowledge of accumulating, but seeing clear, having clarity. And in the koan that I just recited before comes this comparison that Myoden says, now I am a person who knows if the water is hot or cold. We have to know that for ourselves. So these Enlightenment thinkers, they thought into this direction according to their times. And the focus was on the individual. Also, Dr. King pointed at the individual. The essential transformation necessary for change to take place in this world and in this society. Who is it? It's me. And you can point it at yourself. This is where it starts. This is where we start. This is where Dr. King started. That leads then, hopefully, to this beloved community. Principle four is very close to what we're doing here. Nonviolence holds that suffering can educate and transform. Is that so? <laughs> is that so? Interesting, there's a quote by Hakuin Kakuzenji. Hakuin was the a uh, reformer of Rinzai Zen in the 18th century, the 17th, 18th, 1685 until 1759, I think, about the same time that Johann Sebastian Bach lived in, in Germany. So that is a nice parallelism. While Bach was composing and having 10 children, 20 children. 20 children. <laughs> Hakuin was writing this. Yeah. He writes in the context of the great doubt. If you discard all emotions, concepts and thoughts and investigate it single-mindedly, there is no one before whom the great doubt will not appear. When you call forth this great doubt before you in its pure and uninvolved form, you may undergo an unpleasant and strange reaction. However, you must accept the fact, the realization of such a thing as the great matter, the trampling of the multi-tiered gate of birth and death that has come down through endless times penetration of inner understanding of the basic enlightenment of all the Buddhas of the Ten Directions must involve a certain amount of suffering. 
Sorry. <laughs> suffering. Nonviolence holds that suffering can educate and transform. Can educate and transform. Again, how we make relationship with this is very, very important. Violent relationship with ourselves leads to one kind of suffering that is destructive. Embracing it in a nonviolent way will turn just into friction that generates heat. Heat that helps us keep going on this path. Dr. King continues, nonviolence accepts suffering without retaliation. Again, when it hurts, don't retaliate. Because who are you retaliating against? Yourself. And the longer you go into this practice, and if one eventually arises at not only the realization, but the deep knowledge, feeling, not only intuition, but clarity that there are no others. it begins to make complete natural sense that violence has almost no place. I said almost no place because it's undeniable that there is violence. And it's undeniable that if we go into the realm of hypotheticals, even I would commit a violent act to save somebody else's life. But of course that is hypothetical. I say it now. Do I want to find myself in a situation to find that out? Please, no. But if so, we find ourselves exactly in the place where this practice allows us to exist because all of it is always some kind of compromise that we make. Our existence is based upon harm. We call it lunch. But we eat something that would have happily lived on so much longer. The line where we then draw the demarcation, well, it's this is okay to eat and this is not is completely arbitrary. I've said that many times. If we had ears to hear the broccoli when it's cut off, we would probably have a different relationship to it too. And so we can think ourselves and feel ourselves into a really dark corner of this. But ending up doing self-harm it's not such a good choice either, because that's also harmful. The first, the ahimsa, do not do harm, is just not possible. So what do we do? We can't stop living without harming ourselves. We can't continue living without doing harm somewhere. How do we reconcile that? Reconciliation was a word here. Hmm? The only thing that I see that we can do is when we eat, no matter what it is, to not 
spend our energy then to go back and forth, should I have eaten this or not, but to use that energy to pay forward into the development, into helping somebody else, into light, lightening somebody's load, into farming and growing food for somebody else who is dying and doesn't have the choice to into giving the emotional support to somebody who needs it, into the work that builds this beloved community. Unearned suffering is redemptive and has tremendous educational and transforming possibilities. Now the principle of karma would say there is no unearned suffering. We recited every morning in the morning service, the harmful karma that has been produced and accumulated upon ourselves by our own egoistic delusion and attachment. Don't stop there, go on even if that is what it is, by standing still, we cannot come to a deeper place. In the end, it doesn't matter. We are all conditions. Our existence is conditional. And we can spend a lot of time with thinking about why our condition is the way it is. Uh, and that can keep us very often to actually Oh, I wish I could have done this. I wish I knew what to say, but I didn't say all of this because of intellection in places where it doesn't belong. Now the fifth principle. Nonviolence chooses love instead of hate. Nonviolence resists violence of the spirit as well of the, as of the body. Spiritual violence, I mentioned. Bodily violence, we see every day. Nonviolent love is spontaneous, unmotivated, unselfish, and creative. If you want to hear about this love, agape, go on to YouTube and listen to Okuto Osho's talk from last year, where he talked about this kind of love. Of course, it is the heart of the Bodhisattva Kamsaya who hears all the suffering, the cries. It's interesting to know that Dr. King was in contact with one Buddhist teacher, and that teacher was Tiknatan who taught here at Columbia University and also at Princeton. He had actually written a letter to Dr. King in 1965 that was entitled, In Search of the Enemy of Man. But then when he came to the United States in 1966, Thich Nhat and Dr. King actually met. And Thich Nhat Hanh urged Martin Luther King to publicly denounce the Vietnam War that was going on at that time. And 1967, uh, Dr. King gave a famous speech here in New York City at the Riverside Church. His first public question of the U.S.'s involvement in the Vietnam War. The title of the speech was Beyond Vietnam, a, tame, a time to break silence. That speech happened on April 4th, 1967, which happens to be exactly one year before Dr. King was shot, assassinated, 
Dr. King and his life in violence, his experience of violence started earlier. And unfortunately, you know, the first attack on his life also happened in New York City. Like his Riverside speech. He survived a knife attack in 1958. On September 20th, he was signing copies of his book, Stride Toward Freedom, in Bloomstein's department store in Harlem, 230 West 125th Street. I think there is some kind of osteopathic college there now. And he narrowly escaped death. A mentally ill woman thought that King was conspiring against her with the communists and stabbed him in the chest with a letter opener. Almost entering his, his order. That was his first brush with death from an attempt of assassination. And then of course, Dr. King was fatally shot on Thursday, April 4th, 1968, as he stood on the second floor balcony of the Lorraine Motel in Memphis at 6.01 p.m. Violence against a non-violent proponent of human maturation. Sad for us as humanity. But again, that suffering that comes out of this, we have to use to educate ourselves, to clarify in ourselves what we can see about these seeds, the seeds of bringing forth wisdom, compassion, or causing harm and suffering. The Dhammapada again says, Think not lightly of evil, saying, it will not come to me. Drop by drop is the water pot filled. Likewise, the fool, gathering it little by little, finds himself with evil. Think not lightly of good, saying, I will, it will not come to me. Drop by drop is the water pot filled. Likewise, the wise man, gathering it little by little, fills himself with good. Like fine dust thrown against the wind, evil falls back upon that fool who offends in an inoffensive, pure and guiltless person. Harmfulness could be called evil actions. It can only be made up with the gratitude for receiving with the vow to use the energy and insight we gain from this practice to completely give away so that we in this society can come to a place that is more just, less violent, not necessarily just oriented to gain and wealth and material. It's important in the human world it is important in the human world to know when violence occurs, who instigated the violence, 
and then not to be surprised that the reaction to violence will be probably violence in return. While it is completely understandable that we have to defend ourselves when we are attacked, it is still <coughs> an unwholesome action. So if we can contribute to a place where there is a chance for us to keep violent impulses from accumulating, let's help dissolve that. A place where we can see that helpful actions are beginning how we can foster that. And finally, the sixth principle is the one that is, you might think is the one that is the farthest away from the point of view of Buddhism, but I wouldn't even go there to say anything like that. That is, Nonviolence believes that the universe is on the side of justice. Well, from my experience, I can understand how it is helpful to believe that. I don't. I have to frankly say, I don't believe that the universe either the art bends towards good and justice or evil and injustice. What I have been taught and what I've learned through Zazen and life experience is that the universe doesn't give a rat's ass about us. <laughs> it doesn't. It is nature. It's just we take ourselves so freaking, and I would use a different word if it weren't on Zoom. <laughs> serious and important, you know? But the universe, it just functions. It just works. And I usually use gravity as, a, as an example, you know, gravity. Gravity is an expression of that. You let something, you know what? It drops. There is nobody says, I, I, I want this to drop. There's nobody saying, I don't want this to drop. You know, it just works. It's like the Dharma works like nature. Works. It works without will and desire. Ishi yoki nashi. No will, no desire. And after struggling with that, well, are we really living in such a desolate place that there is, mm, it's not a good place. There's no good God, no God of justice or something like that. One can come to the very, very deep realization that this is actually comforting. When something horrible happens to me, I don't give in to my little self that says, ah, you deserve it, or what? It just happens, it just happens, not because I'm a terrible person, you know? Shit happens, stuff happens, and then, okay, okay. On the other hand, if something wonderful happens to us, it's not because we are the chosen ones. No, it just happened. Very comforting. Here comes the big, but this is from the point of view of how Dharma works. We live in a Dharma world. We live in the Dharma world of the human condition in which individuals exist, in which society exists. And within that society, in order for the universe to be on the side of justice and of development into that direction. 
we have to do. Each of us has to do it. Otherwise, nothing will change. Actions of benevolence, non-selfish actions, unconditional acceptance of whoever we meet, opens up the hearts of even the most calcitrant, recalcitrant egotist. It might take a few decades. <laughs> <laughs> but we can't give up. This is working. You are here. The message is, don't stop. Keep breathing. Open your hearts. And by all means, spread it Dr. King was a wonderful example for doing this in the set of the conditions he was born in, in the challenges that he had to face and that he overcame. And with all our challenges, individual and society, We shall overcome. This has been a Zen Study Society podcast. If you found it to be of interest, please consider making a donation by visiting zenstudies.org slash donate. Thank you for listening.